and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the expiration on Thursday of the COVID-era Title 42 rule that allows rapid expulsion of non-Mexican migrants at the border that is expected to cause a flood of refugees, which the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security says is the result of human traffickers misleading migrants into believing the border will be open a concern that has the Biden administration deploying U.S. troops to the border. We will discuss the result of not having an immigration policy, a vacuum that has existed since the Reagan administration, that has fueled political demagoguery making bipartisan solutions impossible, as well as the failure of efforts to deal with the root causes of the exodus of migrants from Central America and now from Cuba, Haiti and Venezuela as well. Joining us is Victoria Sanford, a John Simon Guggenheim Fellow and Professor of Anthropology at the City University of New York. She has given expert testimony on the Guatemalan genocide in international courts and authored seven books, including Buried Secrets, Truth and Human Rights in Guatemala. And her latest book, just out tomorrow, is Textures of Terror, The Murder of Claudina Isabel Valesquez and Her Father's Quest for Justice. Then, with President Biden meeting tomorrow with House and Senate leaders to avoid a catastrophic default on the U.S. debt, which Republicans are using as leverage to extract budget cuts, we will examine what counter-leverage Biden has with a workaround in his pocket based on the 14th Amendment. Joining us is Garrett Epps, a legal affairs editor of the Washington Monthly, who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke University, and the University of Oregon. He's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution, and we will discuss his latest article at the Washington Monthly. I've argued for years that the president must pay the national debt even if Congress won't raise the debt ceiling. Then finally, we'll assess the possibility that the Pentagon, using the popular artificial intelligence chatbot ChatGPT, is already weaponizing AI tech, and speak with Sam Biddle, a reporter at The Intercept, focusing on malfeasance and misused power in technology. He previously worked at Gizmodo and Gorka, covering stories ranging from vast corporate data breaches and celebrity hackers to traffic webcam models and Facebook privacy. As the editor of Valley Wag, he provided a critical view of the startup economy and Silicon Valley culture. We will discuss his latest article at The Intercept, can the Pentagon use ChatGPT? OpenIA won't answer. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work 
to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Victoria Sanford, a John Simon Guggenheim Fellow and Professor of Anthropology at City University of New York. She has given expert testimony on the Guatemalan genocide in international courts and authored seven books, including Buried Secrets, Truth and Human Rights in Guatemala. And her latest book out tomorrow is Textures of Terror, The Murder of Claudina Isabel Velasquez and Her Father's Quest for Justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Victoria Sanford. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Victoria. And I obviously want to talk about your book, but it's in the context, of course, of what's happening on Thursday with the end of the Title 42 public health rule that was issued during the pandemic that gives U.S. officials powers to quickly expel migrants who cross the border without permission. And and that means non-Mexican migrants, largely from Central America. Now, on Thursday, there was a joint press conference down on the border with Secretary of State Blinken and Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, where they said that the expiration of Title 42 on May the 11th is not a green light across the border, despite what they said has been a blitz of misinformation from human smugglers. Mayorkas said the smugglers' propaganda is false. Our border is not open and will not be open after May 11th. What do you expect to happen, given that the U.S. is deploying 1,500 troops on the border? Well, first of all, our border's never been open. Our border wasn't open before Title 42 was enacted under the Trump administration. Um, The Title 42 was enacted so that the Trump administration could expel anyone who came to the border because he wanted to close the border. If you recall, his his policy was our country is full. Um, And no country in the world is full, but our borders have never been open. They have always been very difficult to cross. And um, the, the, the response of the Biden administration is not just to say um, we're moving troops to the border or that we're, the border isn't open, but actually to set up this kind of sham process where their response now is that what they're going to do for immigration issues um, is that they're going to identify humanitarian protection needs before they get to the border. Well, how are they going to do that? They're saying that they're going to set up centers for processing in Guatemala and Colombia to begin with, and later in other countries in Latin America. Of course, the problem with that is one of the reasons that people come to the U.S. border is because they're fleeing for their lives. They're fleeing violence. They're fleeing state violence. They're fleeing gang violence. Women and children are fleeing uh, uh, gender-based abuse in the home, violence in the family, violence in their neighborhoods. And those are all grounds under international law for those individuals to seek asylum. And under international law, one should be able to present oneself at a border and claim the reasons that they're seeking asylum. It makes absolutely no sense and is completely wrongheaded to say that you can set up a center in a country that can't provide basic legal processes for victims of violence, which is the case in Guatemala, most certainly. So these regional processing centers that Mallorcas and and, uh, Blinken announced, the first ones will be in Guatemala and another in Colombia, presumably to deal with Venezuelan immigrants, because you can't obviously set up in Venezuela, nor can you set up in Cuba. So the only thing that seems to be worse than what you're talking about, Victoria, is the Republican plan, which they're going to announce on Thursday, the same day 
at the end of Title 42, which is to build the wall and basically stop all immigrants, including other immigrants from, from not just across the southern border, but from Ukraine, etc. So is there another way out? Is there a, a path that you would prefer? Of course. And I think that's a really good question, because neither the Republicans nor the Democrats are really addressing the issues that are driving people to come to the border. Um, first of all, um, it, I, I have to say, and I think all of us who work on these issues are always shocked to consider the fact that the last time we had any significant overhaul of immigration law in this country was during the administration of President Ronald Reagan, um, which should indicate to everyone how overdue it is for us to have a really serious overhaul. And look at all the millions of people who live in this country, who work in our homes, who work in our neighborhoods, who provide all kinds of services, who were essential workers during the pandemic, but who still lack legal status for living in this country. That would be the first thing that needs to be addressed. The second thing that needs to be addressed is our policies in Latin America. What is happening in these countries that are our neighbors, that are are our historic allies? Um, What is happening in these countries that so many people are fleeing? There's huge violence. There's huge injustice. There's hunger driving people out of um, Guatemala and other countries in Latin America as well. And the reason that's happening is because of incredibly distorted distribution, incredibly distorted distribution of wealth in those countries. And if the U.S. is really serious about taking on the immigration issue, we need to look at our foreign policy because really immigration policy is the domestic expression of U.S. foreign policy. And if we don't have clear policies in Latin America, part of the fallout is going to be in immigration. And it's not, um, I I would suggest that it's not that everyone is falling prey to smugglers saying the borders are open. People are fleeing for their lives. Those are two very different situations. And so if you don't look head on at what's causing the departures of people, then it's really not possible that you can address what their needs are. And I would also suggest it's pretty laughable that we would suggest that we're going to set up some kind of center in Guatemala, which is a country where prosecutors and judges have fled because they can't even exercise their jobs. They can't do their jobs without being forced to flee, without threats of violence. So I think we need to clean our own house and think about what realistic policies toward Central America would be. Well, when Biden was vice president under Barack Obama, he was given the Central American portfolio and on the basis that we need to solve the immigration problem by going to the source of this exodus and try and improve conditions in these countries so that people don't flee. And then he then, when he became president, he gave the same portfolio to his vice president, Kamala Harris. But nothing seems to get done and achieved. And meanwhile, you have these terrible governments, although there has been a change of government in Honduras from a criminal drug-dealing family. They're out of power now. And the reporting that I did on Honduras indicated that um, a lot of people were fleeing from what you've written about in your new book, from femicide, and particularly mothers wanting to protect their sons who were being forced either to join gangs or get killed by gangs. Absolutely. And I I mean, I think that's a really good point. And I would also um, want to point out that it was under Barack Obama that hundreds of thousands of people were deported. We had some of the highest numbers of deportations 
under the Obama administration. So this um, massive deportation of people who are fleeing for their lives is not just the Democrats or the Republicans, but both parties do this because they're not addressing the underlying causes. And you're absolutely right. The gang violence is a driving force. It drives women out. It drives mothers out. It drives daughters out. And women are seeking to protect their sons from this gang violence as well. Um, and, you know, it's also in, in because we don't have a solid policy working in Central America right now, we have Nayib Bukele in El Salvador, who's been having this incredibly aggressive authoritarian policy against young men in his country and against gangs, but it's not ending the gangs. What it's done is push gang leaders into Guatemala and into Mexico. We know this because they've been arrested in those countries. And now, you know, the second um, Zuri Rios, who's running for president, is in second place right now for the presidency in Guatemala. She's a great admirer of Bukele's uh, process and procedures in handling gangs, basically his authoritarianism, because she is, after all, her father's daughter. Um, he was a dictator and a genocidaire. She represents those same policies. So why then uh, did Biden and Harris fail? Well, because they, he, I think that he did exactly what Barack Obama did. He passed it off to her because he didn't want to deal with it. And the reason that her plan failed is she went in there and instead of working with civil society and working with justice operators, people in the courts, prosecutors and judges who were trying to make the judicial system function, they contributed $100,000 to um, President Yamate's fake anti-corruption group, which was basically a nod to the fact that there would be no change in the powers that be in Guatemala. And what that has led to is more justice operators fleeing. It's led to the election commission denying the right of several candidates, most recently um, Delma Cabrera, who was a really strong candidate for president, first indigenous woman, strong candidate for president since Rigoberta Menchu. And, um, you know, she's not on the ballot, just like Delma Dana was pushed off the ballot when Yamate became president. And right now, the front runner for president is a big uh, Finkero, a, a big landowner. Um, and there seems to be a lot of um, evidence that he receives uh, resources from narco money. Um, and I mean, if you look at the people who are running for president right now in Guatemala, basically the front runners are either supported by narco money or they're supported by the oligarchy or they're supported by former military officers or some combination thereof. So obviously the other problem is not just the ones that you've outlined with El Salvador and with that horrible leader they have there and the Guatemalan leaders and their possible successes. The Venezuela, of course, is a is a broken country. What seven million people have left the country? Cuba is also having a problem. You know, it's dysfunctional, and people are leaving as much as they can. And in, and the same is happening in Nicaragua under a dictatorship of of Ortega. So, how do you deal with those problems? Well, I think that's a really good question, and I'm glad that you raised the issue of Nicaraguans fleeing Ortega and Venezuelans fleeing the corruption of Venezuela, because most of the Venezuelans have stayed in Colombia. 
And a lot of the Nicaraguans have stayed in Costa Rica. And the reason for that is they've been accepted in those countries. And the Colombian government has actually set up a procedure that gives Venezuelans a temporary work status, which is what we should be doing. We should be giving people a temporary work status because the the flip side of it is our economy needs those workers. We want those workers. And if you look at the proposals that are put forth in this new plan um, by the Biden administration, part of the backdoor of it is, well, there will be seasonal workers. We're going to restore visa processing in Cuba. And in fact, we're going to work with Canada and Spain, and they're going to accept seasonal worker programs also. And so instead of like creating all of this unnecessary um, paperwork, it would be really useful and probably a lot more productive um, on our end if we would work with the people who are in this country, who are working, who've lived here, who don't have legal status, and then those who have come fleeing um, violence in their homelands and give them temporary status. We've done that in the past for other countries, and it's worked. We should do that again. It would be a lot more productive for our country. It would be a lot more cost effective. And it would also mean that all of the people who are working in this country would be paying taxes, um, which they would like to pay. They would like to pay taxes and receive services instead of feeling like they're hunted every day as they perform jobs that we want them to do. So just in closing, let's touch on your book, Victoria Sanford. You've chosen the murder of Claudina Isabel Velasquez and her father's quest for justice, uh, the book Texas of Terror. You've chosen this example of this young woman who was a law student. So tell us about her, how she was killed, by whom, and why the father is seeking justice. Sure. I, you know, I met um, her father, Jorge Velasquez, in 2007, two years after his daughter, Claudina Isabel, who was a 19-year-old law student, was murdered. And I was introduced to him by Amilcar Mendez, a human rights leader in Guatemala. And I knew Amilcar from work in Mayan communities because he's worked with Mayan communities on human rights issues his entire life. And I was surprised when I met Jorge Velasquez because he's taller than me. He's whiter than me. He's upper middle class. Um, He's an auditor. He's conservative. He's evangelical. And he certainly speaks Spanish better than I do. And I thought, why on earth does he need me to accompany him? And um, and I also thought, well, it's not going to last more than five minutes or 15 minutes because he's going to try to evangelize me. And what ended up happening is that, in fact, he wasn't getting justice because justice simply isn't available to anyone in Guatemala. And secondly, he did need accompaniment because he needed help in documenting what was happening. And so it ended up in the end, I mean, we worked together for more than a decade on his daughter's case, which is still unresolved. We went to prosecutors' offices. We went to human rights offices. We went to embassy offices. I helped him organize uh, tours about the case. Um, His daughter's case became emblematic for Amnesty International about the feminist side of women and the way that the police and the prosecutors just brush it aside, dismiss the victims, blame the victims. Um, The police initially said they didn't investigate her case because she was wearing sandals and had a belly button ring. And so in in their lexicon, that meant she was a prostitute. 
And so they didn't think that she had value to be investigated. And even if she had been a prostitute, that would be a murder that should be investigated. But in any case, it's the way that the police and the prosecutors systematically dismiss cases of um, violence against women in particular. You know, there's a 98% impunity rate on the murder of women in Guatemala. That means that only 2% of the murders are actually investigated and um, prosecuted. And we know that over 50% of them are never, the files are never even opened. Those cases are never even opened. And so I helped Jorge and I accompanied him in this process where he ultimately took the case to the Inter-American Court. Um, and in the Inter-American Court, the, the court ruled against the government of Guatemala um, and, and ruled that the government of Guatemala was responsible for not providing a safe environment for its citizens. If half the citizens of a country are unable to move freely and, and um, walk freely, speak freely, dress freely, um, and date daily life, then you can't have a functioning democracy. And the state has a responsibility to provide um, those rights of freedom of expression and freedom of movement um, to all of its citizens. And I ended up writing a book about it because I think what's really powerful about Jorge's story is that it shows that one person, one father, Jorge's not political. He doesn't belong to a political organization. He's made every effort throughout the entire time that he's worked on this case to not be co-opted by anyone or any movement or any political group um, because he just wanted justice for his daughter. But as he worked on this case, he became aware of how many women are killed and that it wasn't just his daughter, but it's something that happens in the country every day. And he wanted to make the world safer in memory of his daughter. Um, and I, I think it's a really powerful and moving story. I think these are tough stories, but I also think at the end of the day, they're stories of love. Just as you said that women flee to bring their sons and save them from gangs, parents push for investigations of the murder of their daughter, um, and that's what Jorge did out of love. And he risked his life. He dedicated his life. Um, he lost income. Um, he lost friends, people who said, let that go. Um, because he just believed in um, seeking justice and also in the memory of his daughter, who was studying law to make the world a better place. And so that really became part of his story, was working for justice for his daughter, for her case, but also in her memory and for other women today and in the future in his country. Well, Victoria Sanford, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Victoria Sanford, who is the John Simon Guggenheim Fellow and Professor of Anthropology at City University of New York. She's given expert testimony on the Guatemalan genocide in international courts and authored seven books, including Buried Secrets, Truth and Human Rights in Guatemala. And her latest book out tomorrow is Textures of Terror, The Murder of Claudina Isabel Velasquez and Her Father's Quest for Justice. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking into how the Republicans are using the debt crisis as leverage to extract budget cuts, while Biden has counter leverage with a workaround in his pocket based on the 14th Amendment. De la grande Babilón Me dicen el clandestino Por no llevar papel Pa' una ciudad del norte 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Garrett Epps, a legal affairs editor of the Washington Monthly, who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke University, and the University of Oregon. And he's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution. And his latest article at the Washington Monthly is, I've argued for years that the president must pay the national debt even if Congress won't raise the debt ceiling. Welcome to Background Briefing, Garrett Epps. Hey, Ian. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you think the chances are of the meeting tomorrow between Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy, along with Schumer and McConnell of the Senate and Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader of the House. Do you think they can pull off a deal? Because there's some press reports indicating that they might be able to do a deal that would basically extend their debt ceiling through the 2024 elections while freezing spending. So what are the chances, do you think? Uh, Well, you know, there's an old, uh, there's a saying in Casablanca where Rick says to uh, Major Strasser, your business is politics and mine is running a saloon. I, I run the saloon. I'm, I'm the con law guy. It, it seems it may be that a deal can be worked out. Uh, I'm a little skeptical because it doesn't seem to me from this distance that Speaker McCarthy really has control of his caucus. And I think that it would only take a few members uh, who think that you know, their party and their faction can profit more from default than from a deal uh, to blow that up. It's it's uh, it's a very rickety situation. Uh, and, you know, the last time when default was avoided, we had uh, somebody on the order of Boehner as speaker who uh, actually understood what, what the background problems are. I'm not sure that the Republican caucus uh, currently understands how serious this situation is. I think they see it as a, a chance to score points and get themselves on Fox News. Well, last time, it was in 2011, when they pulled the same stunt, the Republicans. This time it's the um, House Freedom Caucus, and then back then it was the Tea Party. But, you know, it has nothing to do with the debt, what they're doing. It has absolutely nothing to do with the debt. In fact, it makes the debt worse. So... I don't understand why the messaging from the White House has been so poor. For months and months, they should have been telling the American people that this is what Speaker Boehner referred to as legislating terrorism. You don't deal with terrorists. You don't negotiate with terrorists. This has nothing to do with the budget. That's a separate issue. We can negotiate that until the cows come home. But the debt ceiling has to be lifted. We have to pay our prior debts. And if you default, then you really add to the debt, you know, you create massive economic damage, not just to the United States, but the global economy. So are you in any way bothered by the fact that they're even having to negotiate? It seems to me that they well, should be, even co- be in a of position course. of having to negotiate. Of, of course. Um, you know, this is, not, this is not the way a sane government runs. In other words, if, if you uh, say... You come into uh, you come into the house and you say, I have a hand grenade here and we can negotiate, you know, uh, the the uh, use of the TV and and who gets to use the gym when and so forth. Or I'll pull the pin and 
blow you up, it, it's not a sane transaction. That's not the way uh, sane people run their affairs. And certainly it's not the way that the greatest uh, economy should be operated. Paying the debt is a thing you do. It's not a thing you negotiate. It's, and certainly when you have a party that has uh, failed to win uh, elections, they don't get to say, well, we now have a slight majority in one house of Congress. And so we're going to rewrite, we're going to repeal all uh, of the other party's program, or we're going to just blow the debt up. That's not a sane way to operate. I don't know what is going through uh, the minds of the people in the White House. Uh, I do wonder whether thinking that maybe they should just be low key about it um, is was trying to cut off the energy of the, the oxygen to this extreme faction that wants to uh, force a, de uh, a default. Uh, whether that works or not, I don't know. Uh, my my most cheerful imagination, I'm not saying this is true, but I, I, I like to think it could be, is that they know that Biden has the executive order in his pocket. And if the Republicans really try to blow up the country in order to get what they want, he'll pull it out and sign it. Uh, that's so in other something words, you would do. You don't threaten. You don't threaten. You don't go public with that. But, you know, it's like if you have a pistol, you keep it in your pocket unless you're going to use it. So in other words, the radicals that control McCarthy, the Freedom Caucus, they might well want the country to default and the economy to go into shambles. And that way they could bring back Donald Trump riding in on a white horse in all the economic chaos that would follow. Maybe that's it. The rest of the Republicans think this is a legitimate use of leverage. So you're saying that there's counter leverage in Biden's pocket, right? Uh, I think I think in the end, you know, I, I hope that the White House sees it the way I see it. And more and more people are seeing it, including some constitutional scholars who've recently arrived at my position. I've been saying this for 12 years. Ian. I've been saying we have to be ready for this. This is not the way the Constitution is supposed to operate. I think a lot of people thought, don't be silly, it'll never happen. And now, you know, we're days away or weeks away from it happening. Uh, and a number of people are coming to my position and just saying the president has not just the option, not just the power, he has the duty to act and comply with the Constitution and pay the national debt. And, you know, it would be a mess if it happens. You know, it would it would cause economic dislocation if the president has to pay the debt by executive order. But it would be a, a heck of a lot better than what would happen um, if the U.S. defaults on the debt. And it would have the added advantage of complying with the U.S. Constitution. So just to touch on how long you've been arguing this, back in 2011, when it happened the last time, Lawrence Tribe of Harvard, he scorned your argument. And back in 2011, Representative uh, Barney Frank accused you of believing that Elvis is still alive. But both of them have now joined in in terms of advocating for this 14th Amendment fix. Well, I don't know about Barney. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he later admitted after the crisis in 2011, he later admitted that they had seriously thought about doing this uh, and and decided the politics of it were wrong. So, you know, I'm waiting for my apology, but I don't I'm not really, you know, banking on it. 
Um, you know, Professor Tribe uh, has thought a lot about this. And, you know, 11 years ago, you know, I, 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 it's a little bit like the science fiction movie that comes along and, and says, what if an asteroid hit the Earth? And everybody goes, well, that's a very amusing uh, movie, uh, fun to watch, but of course it couldn't happen. And then you begin to realize, you know, it could happen. And, and there have been times when asteroids came close and so forth. And now, you know, we have NASA preparing to de uh, deflect an asteroid. And I think what has happened over the past 12 years is that a lot of people who basically assumed that this was a kind of far-fetched science fiction type scenario began to realize that we're in a situation where this could happen. And if it happens, um, its consequences would be very, very malign. And the Constitution really does prohibit it. The Constitution really does impose on the duty, on the government, the duty to pay the debt in full, on time, without any sort of temporary or permanent default. And so a lot of, you know, the, the Dr. Johnson said the prospect of being hanged in a fortnight serves to concentrate the mind wonderfully. And I think a lot of people's minds have gotten concentrated on this scenario over the past few months. So let's walk through it then, uh, Garrett Epps, how it could happen if the Republicans still want to take this to the mat and blow up the economy in order to basically just destroy Biden's economic plans and roll back the first but still inevitable attempts to deal with global warming through transitioning to cleaner energy. All those steps are going to go away if you accept what the Republicans are trying to extort here. So immediately, if Biden under the 14th Amendment then orders the Treasury to start paying the bills, mm. the House which is uh, its prerogative is that it controls the purse strings, the Republican House would then sue them and then that would go straight to the Supreme Court. Is that the steps that would happen? I, I, I don't actually see that happening precisely that way, Ian. I'm not sure that the House would be able to bring a lawsuit against the president to stop it. Um, now, it's possible they could. It would not go straight to the Supreme Court. It would have to go to a federal district court in the District of Columbia uh, and so forth. Um, but I don't see that the House or anybody else has standing uh, because, you know, you're you're basically um, suppose, you know, my house is on fire and I'm putting it out. And my neighbor says, I'm going to sue you. And and my lawsuit is that you're putting the, the house on fire out and I think you should let it burn down. And I'm like, you know, it's not any of your business. It's my house. I'm supposed to put it out. I'm not supposed to let it burn down. You can't sue me over that. And there's the similar problem of like, I'm suing the president because he's complying with the constitution. Does that get them into court or not? Now, this Supreme Court is entirely capable. This is the Supreme Court we have today, regrettably, is, is uh, partisan extreme and lawless, they are they are capable, if they wish to, of manufacturing some uh, cause of action that would let uh, uh, Ken Paxton or, or someone of that sort bring a lawsuit. Um, but that's that's down the road. You know, meanwhile, the debt's being paid. And I think, you know, the president should be should be paying the debt. The Constitution tells him he has to do that. The president should be doing that. And then if there's a lawsuit 
you contemplate what what you would do if the court rules against you. Right, but once you set that precedent, uh, can you go back to business as usual? Um, you know, I think that it is possible that if you set that precedent, uh, there would be no more debt ceiling. You know, the debt ceiling mm -hmm. is not a constitutional feature. It is a kind of accidental statute that flows out of the war uh, bond issues of the First World War. Um, it's. I think that this, the ceiling is unconstitutional, uh, and I think that, you know, it just would fall by the wayside. Now, you know, Congress is real. The House's real resort, uh, if they want to follow the Constitution, would be to, to try to impeach the president, to say we don't think he should be paying the debt uh, and we're going to impeach him. Uh, if they do that and he is impeached, he'd be tried in the Senate. I th I'm quite confident he would be uh, acquitted and the law would be clear from then on. The president has the authority to pay the debt. That's what the law ought to be. Now, Biden also might be defeated for re-election. The American people might say, we don't want you paying the debt. OK, then we know what the law is that way, too. But at any rate, we wouldn't have this this humiliating spectacle every few years of a bunch of crazy people coming out of the house next door and pointing guns at the at the national credit and saying, you know, we feel like shooting or maybe we won't, you know, give us everything we want and maybe we won't kill you this time. This is no way to run a country. This is not a sane political system. So just in the last few minutes then, Garrett Epps, let's talk about how the 14th Amendment was actually applied in, a, in this case that we're talking about, albeit on a, not on a dramatic level like the tanking of the U.S. economy. But let's talk about John Perry, who bought war bonds back in 1918, uh, which were $10,000 worth, which was payable in 1934, and he wanted it paid back in gold. So tell us that example of how well, the 40th Amendment was uh, used. Yeah. Mr. Perry um, uh, brought a lawsuit. He he borrowed $10,000 and the bond had what was called a gold clause. And it said that he would be repaid um, in uh, $10,000 in gold coin at the present value of gold, that is in 1934 when the, when the bond matured. Well, uh, unfortunately for him, uh, before 1934 came 1929, the economy collapsed um, and the Congress resolved that that gold clause bonds would no longer be repayable in gold. They would be replayable in dollars because gold was not to be legal tender anymore because the result, the alternative would have been national bankruptcy. The, the gold reserves were being drained uh, daily. And so the, the, the gold, the U.S. went off the gold standard. So when Perry uh, brought his uh, claim for uh, to retire the bond, he was told, here's your $10,000 in paper money. He said, no, you promised it to me in gold. I'm going to the Supreme Court. He went to the Supreme Court asking the court to order that he the gold clause be enforced. And the court ruled, the court said two important things. One was it said, yes, he's absolute. this debt is absolutely sacrosanct. It has to be paid. Um, but it only has to be paid in legal tender. Uh, and the reason that the last part of it was important was that it is now clear 
that President Roosevelt was prepared to defy the court. If they told the government to pay these debts in gold, the president had an order ready and a speech ready in which he would say, I am setting aside the order of the court. I will not comply with it because as president, it is my job to prevent the country from being destroyed um, economically by this decision. Now, Roosevelt didn't have to do that. But please notice that if Biden decides he needs to defy an order of the Supreme Court to pay the debt, he has a much stronger case. He would be doing what the Constitution tells him to do. The Constitution says that debt shall not be questioned. It has to be paid. It has to be paid in full. It has to be paid on time. But was and that the, Perry's argument? His argument was that, that it had to be repaid um, in the currency in which it was borrowed. And the, the court said, and I think the court was very strategically ducking a conflict with the executive by saying this, the court said the promise was to be paid back with $10,000 in gold currency and there is no more gold currency. Gold currency was abolished uh, in 1933. And therefore, uh, you get $10,000 in paper money. Um, and, you know, right, that I, was... I wanted to, just in the last minute here, I wanted to determine what the role of the 14th Amendment was in the Perry case. Well, there were two parts. He said, he said they violated the 14th Amendment by not paying me um, the, the money in gold. And the court said... You are absolutely correct that the 14th Amendment binds you. You know, some people had argued that the 14th Amendment was obsolete, that it was only something about the Civil War debt and so forth. The court said, no, the 14th Amendment binds present and future debts of the United States, but it only requires them to be repaid in uh, legal tender. And of course, Biden wouldn't be trying to pay in anything but legal tender. So that issue doesn't arise. I it's it's complicated. Uh, but the, the point is, um, Roosevelt was ready to defy the court if he had to. And I certainly think that serious consideration should be given to what we'll do if a lawless Supreme Court tries to tank the national credit. Well, Garrett Epps, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's always a pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Garrett Epps, who's a legal affairs editor of the Washington Monthly, who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke University, and the University of Oregon. And he's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution. And his latest article at the Washington Monthly is, I've argued for years that the president must pay the national debt even if Congress won't raise the debt ceiling. We're going to take a brief station break, back assessing the possibility of the Pentagon using the popular artificial intelligence chatbot ChatGPT is already weaponizing AI tech. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sam Biddle, a reporter at The Intercept, focusing on malfeasance and misused power in technology. 
He previously worked at Gizmodo and Gorka, covering stories ranging from vast corporate data breaches and celebrity hackers to trafficked webcam models and Facebook privacy. As the editor of Valleywag, he provided a critical view of the startup economy and Silicon Valley culture. And his latest article at The Intercept is, Can the Pentagon Use Chat GPT? Open AI Won't Answer. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sam Biddle. Thank you so much for having me. So OpenAI is this $30 billion R&D titan that is behind the chat GPT bot, chat box, right, that's becoming right. very, very popular. Correct. Yeah, I would say it has uh, become extremely popular at this point, the world over. Right. And in general, this is a, a whole terrain that is posing all kinds of dangers, is it not? right across the board, not just in military terms, which we'll certainly talk about, but in political terms. Already we've seen how the dialogue can get more extreme. So you can just imagine uh, when politicians start using it, what that will do when it's based upon engagement via enragement. And these uh, algorithms are all about getting attention and then, then on the military field, we've already had Vladimir Putin some time back saying, he who dominates AI will dominate the battlefield. So t- walk us through what you're learning about the holding company, if that's the right way to describe open AI in terms of its ambiguous relationship with the Pentagon. Sure. So um, open AI was actually founded as a nonprofit. Um, it was supposed to be a... A, a non-profit incubator, a responsible non-corporate steward of AI R&D. Um, at, uh, you know, at, over, um, over the years uh, since its founding, it uh, has switched to being a for-profit, a company, you know, a, a corporation like, like any other. Um, I think perhaps realizing that um, AI-based tools, uh, machine learning based tools broadly, um, are potentially, uh, enormously lucrative, um, which is why Microsoft has invested billions and billions of dollars into open AI because they, um, rather than now being sort of more science, um, oriented or research research oriented are product oriented and those products could potentially make a ton of money. Uh, so the, um, their current status is, yeah, you know, uh, um, a, a tech company, uh, not publicly traded, but a tech company. I think that we can discuss the way we talk about Google or Microsoft or Facebook or Twitter or uh, any of the smaller players as well. So in terms of the military, though, I mean, it's hard for me, given what I mentioned about what Putin was saying, I can't imagine that there's not a lot of R&D going on. And in your article, you point out, a recent meeting in a Q&A session where the head of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which is a top secret agency, sort of made a somewhat rambling case for possible use of chat GPT. But what about Palantir, Peter Thiel's company? I mean, they've been involved with the CIA for some time. They do data mining, don't they? I mean, how... What do we know that's going on? <laughs> what do we not know what's going on with already big Pentagon contracts? And there was another huge Pentagon contract, was there not, 
in 2020 involving Amazon Web Services, Google, Microsoft, IBM, and Oracle. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is, I would say, throughout the Department of Defense, a very, very uh, intense appetite for um, AI-based, machine learning-based technologies. Um, I think a lot of that is motivated in part by um, concern, motivated less by a need for a specific capability than uh, fears that if we don't develop this stuff, China and Russia are going to. Um, it, it's it's almost it's a it's a little bit backwards in some way. Whereas it's you know the Pentagon isn't saying um, necessarily that they need X Y Z capabilities, but there's there's almost an argument of um, I mean they are, but there's also an argument of um, AI development for the sake of AI development, just because we cannot fall behind um, you know our, our global adversaries. Um, this really I mean it, the word the term AI I think is is uh, despite you know using it myself in, in my articles and and elsewhere, um, it is a unhelpful term because it encompasses so 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 much. I mean, it can include um, you know, that the Pentagon would like to incorporate automated um, uh, decision making, uh, um, which is something that um, Palantir is now offering um, uh, an AI based service to that, and um, you know to sort of to speed up the uh, process. Uh, you know, the various processes that go into fighting war or um, conducting you know, gathering intelligence. Um, you know, m- AI or what we refer to as AI uh, is, is usually just sort of shorthand for automation. Um, it's a you know, so- software that can rapidly make decisions based on pre-existing data uh, much faster than any, than any human could, which if you are the Pentagon and want to um, outpace your opponents in one way or another uh, is you know, very naturally um, appealing. Uh, with the National Geospatial Intelligence uh, Agency in particular that I wrote about in this story, um, uh, uh, an official from that agency had discussed at a conference back in March um, the potential to use ChatGPT or um, a similar uh, text generation tool to help its human analysts basically find patterns in all of the data that they have to go through. Um, that kind of pattern finding is also something that um, machine learning based tools tend to be very good at. So if you're an intelligence agency that is drowning in data, in, in raw, unstructured data, um, feeding it into one of these tools, uh, you know, the idea is that feeding it, uh, that data into these tools could help you you know, find uh, shapes and forms and patterns in, 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 in the aggregate that otherwise a person uh, or, or many, many people working together would have missed. But there's a danger in that, as you point out, though, isn't there, Sam, that already chat GPT, some of its users have been getting some bizarre stuff back that is being referred to as what some sort of form, tech form of hallucination? Exactly right. Yeah, so ChatGPT and and other text generation tools like it um, have no comprehension of factuality. They are designed to output text that is coherent um, above all else, which is why um, these, these things that it generates are so compelling and persuasive is because they really do very often now uh, read as if they were created by um, a human of, of, of decent intelligence. But um, 
even uh, you know, I, I think we, we would agree that you know, even the the, the least informed uh, human has an understanding of the concepts of factual or or incorrect and and so forth, um, and and at least tries to uh, say make factual statements when asked a question. Um, uh, ChatGPT is not designed that way. Um, so yes, it, it is it is able to very rapidly, very impressively, um, sort of almost overwhelmingly impressively generate responses in response to questions. Um, but you can't be certain that those responses, no matter how convincing and real and uh, educated they seem, have are grounded in reality. And so, yes, I think there is, you know, I, I think um, experts broadly across the field agree that there is a, a risk there, certainly, um, whether it's a civilian or a military application. But the potential for AI is that it can improve itself, right? So uh, it, potentially, it, yeah, um, it, it, to it, the point it, where it could race ahead of any human control. I mean, I'm thinking of the Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Remember right. Hal, the computer? Yes, of course. Yeah, no, of I mean, course, right. I mean, the the I'm, the I'm sorry, Dave scenario is, I think, in everyone's imagination. Um, um, I, I mean, I, I there there is a great deal of debate right now um, uh, uh, among people who have been studying this stuff for decades um, in, in some cases, a debate over what the nature of the risk is. Some people, um, you know, again, some extremely knowledgeable people who do this for a living for a very long time um, fear that, yes, that uh, there is a danger of uh, something like ChatGPT years down the line actually gaining sentience and, 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 you know, gaining some sort of malicious streak uh, towards its creators. Um, there is, I think, a far more likely risk, not of um, self-conscious uh, computers sort of turning against us, but rather humans placing so much trust and faith um, into these systems and integrating them into our societies that when they make mistakes, we won't realize it until it's too late, um, which is, I think, maybe a more, a, I think, a far more immediate and realistic risk than something, you know, akin to uh, Kubrick or uh, Terminator or, or what have you. But it's pretty clear, though, isn't it, Sam, that tech has already been militarized. So, oh, well, yes, uh, that, that, you know, for I, th I think it, in, in, it, it always has been, <laughs> certainly. Right. Um, so we just don't uh, know how far the horse is down the paddock after bolting. Yeah. Right. Yes, I think with with any new technology, it is it is a safe assumption that it will be militarized at some point. I mean, that's just that's just the the case made by his, you know by history, um, uh, and and the Pentagon we is is very open about uh, you know like I said, very very open about it and e publicly eager to incorporate um, AI into its you know as they say it, as they call it war fighting. Capabilities, and the same the same would go for the intelligence agencies. You know, they 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 will they they want to use. There's an appetite to use this stuff and to figure out whether it can be useful, um, uh, really as as quickly as possible. But where it could get scary, and it seems seems to be where it'll probably head, is in cyber warfare, right? Where you could literally have a cyber war over in milliseconds before a human being can even comprehend what's happened. Yeah, so I, I think that, that goes back to what I was saying about automated decision-making, certainly, yeah. Um, if 
if we if, if we and by we I mean you know, the species uh, farm out too much decision making uh, capacity to automated systems, yes, yeah, some, something um, something uh, deeply harmful, perhaps catastrophically harmful, uh, could happen before we even realize before we even realize it's occurring. And you know that does not require the the you know HAL 9000 Terminator scenario uh, at all. Um, you know, a, 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 an automated um, AI system could be far, far, far short of um, uh, conscious or, or sentience or, or self-aware or, or even genuinely intelligent um, to cause catastrophic um, mistakes. Um, you know, th- th- again, that's sort of, I think, the more immediate risk is not, you know, uh, computerized malice, but just sort of uh, computer, computer error uh, on, a, on a much more significant uh, scale. But a number of people who monitor the tech world, uh, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of people like um, some of them coming from it, like Eric Schmidt, have already really uh, sounded the alarm. I mean, and particularly, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of how even this current iteration of chat GPT, how that could really poison our already incredibly poisonous politics, you you know, unleashing the ability to make the most unbelievably nasty political ads. So that seems to be happening. We've already been warned and it's already clear that there's massive danger to our societal discourse. But in a parallel sense, the greater danger is clearly in the military field. And I don't see how, as your article points out, OpenAI, the $30 billion R&T titan that owns ChatGPT and started out as a non-profit and now has massive investments from Microsoft, etc. Even if they're having some ethical problem, really owning up to the extent to which they're controlling their product, imagine what's happening in Russia and China. I think it is, it is um, probably a good idea to contemplate the risks of these technologies um, on the, on their own, you know, I mean, I, I, I am not sure that um, uh, Russia or, or China have proven themselves to be more or less responsible stewards of extremely dangerous technology than um, the United States. And I think, you know, it makes sense to approach this from sort of proliferation um, perspective, uh, uh, right, uh, you know, responsible AI governance in the U.S. will do nothing to curb irresponsible uh, uses in other countries. I mean, this, this will require a global consensus, um, certainly. But, you know, the problem with uh, building that kind of consensus is you have the United States saying, OK, well, we need to go full steam ahead. Um, it's hard to urge caution from the likes of, you know, Russia or China or whoever, um, when we are, uh, you know, char- charging forth, um, uh, without waiting, without waiting to, um, you know, I, I, the, the, the time I think to to consider grave risks is before you develop the thing, right. Rather than after. And this stuff is so new and moving so rapidly that it's hard to even get a good sense of what those risks are, let alone how to counter them. Um, but uh, the problem with slamming on the brakes is that uh, is not good for business. So you you have, I think, two diametrically opposed incentives here, which is, you know, on the one hand, OpenAI uh, makes their money by developing AI. Um, you know, that they have agreed to 
a, a voluntary sort of pause on releasing the next iteration of um, chat GPT. But, um, you know, that, that is not a long-term or even really medium-term solution. That was just sort of more a response, I think, to public anxieties. But, um, yeah, I mean, once this stuff is out there uh, to a certain extent, um, it won't even really matter what OpenAI does because you'll be able to run it on your own computer if you'd like. Well, Sam Biddle, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Sam. And again, I'll be speaking with Sam Biddle, who's a reporter at The Intercept, focusing on malfeasance and misused power in technology. He previously worked at Gizmodo and Gawker, covering stories ranging from vast corporate data breaches and celebrity hackers to traffic webcam models and Facebook privacy. And as the editor of Valley Wag, he provided a critical view of the startup economy and the Silicon Valley culture. And his latest article at The Intercept is, Can the Pentagon Use Chat GPT? Open AI won't answer. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past Oh